0: Welcome to the Two Journeys Bible Study Podcast. This podcast is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode 34 in our Acts Bible Study Podcast. This episode is entitled, Paul in Thessalonica and Berea, where we'll discuss Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 15. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses we're looking at today?
1: So we're going to see Paul's continued ministry as apostle to the Gentiles. He was a trailblazing, church-planting apostle, uh, reaching out with the gospel. And we're going to see settled opposition. Uh, to his ministry by unbelieving Jewish people in those communities in Thessalonica and Berea who made life very, very difficult for Paul and opposed him. And he writes about them in his epistles, uh, who were opposed to Jesus as Messiah and sought to do everything he could to stop the spread of this gospel. And so it's a marvelous thing that gives us a backdrop or a sense of Paul's commitment to, to preaching the gospel against all opposition. As the Lord said at the time of his conversion, I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name. We're going to see some of that opposition today, but also his resilience and his determination to take the gospel to lost people.
0: Well, let me go ahead and read verses 1 through 15 in Acts chapter 17. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. and attacked the house of Jason seeking to bring them out to the crowd and when they could not find them they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting these men who have turned the world upside down and have come here also and Jason has received them and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar saying that there is another king Jesus and the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest they let them go The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, They came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Hmm. Andy, what do we learn about Paul's usual mission strategy from verses 1 and 2?
1: Well, we, uh, we know this also uh, in Romans where he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is a power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. So the strategy we see in the book of Acts was practical, physical even. When he would come to a community and there would be a Jewish uh, synagogue, he would go there uh, first to proclaim the gospel. And he does that here as well. Uh, He comes to Thessalonica and there is a Jewish synagogue there. Now, there wasn't in Philippi. He just went to the river to find a place of prayer where he had heard some people gathered. Here, there is a synagogue and he goes there, uh, it says in verse 2, as his custom was.
0: Now, Luke says that Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures. What does that expression mean, and how can we reason with unbelievers from the scriptures? Let's say in evangelism.
1: Right, you know he's going to say later in the book of Acts, you know what I'm saying is true and reasonable. Um, there is a reasonableness to the gospel. There's a rationality to it. We need to understand God created us in His image after his likeness. And part of being created in the image of God is the ability to reason, to think things through. Things make sense, they're reasonable. As it says in Isaiah 1, come, let us reason together, says the Lord. And so the gospel is reasonable. Now it goes beyond reason, but it doesn't, uh, con- it doesn't contradict reason or reasonable processes. And one of the things that these Jews had already accepted is that the Old Testament scriptures, they would just call it the scriptures, were the word of God. Uh, It was absolutely the word of God. And so Paul was reasoning or proving from the scriptures, from the prophetic writings especially, that Jesus was the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who was promised, the son of David who was to come. And so he lays out the scriptural proofs. Now, Jesus himself had begun this whole thing in his lifetime somewhat during his ministry. But then especially after his resurrection, before his ascension in that 40-day seminary he had with uh, the 12, with the 12 apostles, minus Judas, of course. And so um, proving uh, the scriptures, uh, showing them the things that were said. um, In Luke 24, as he says, uh, he began with certain scriptures showing how the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to the, uh, to the whole world, beginning in Jerusalem. And so he says, you are witnesses of these things. Luke 24, he's saying, these are the things that were written in the scriptures. And so Paul in due time became the inheritor of that same pattern. He learned perhaps somewhat directly from God, as he says in Galatians 1, but also perhaps from the church, from, from Peter and the others, some additional scriptural proofs concerning Jesus. And it's really exciting. You look at some of these things, and you're like, well, what are they? Well, there's some key texts, some key scriptures. Uh, for example, uh, we, would, we would go to you know, Isaiah 7, the virgin will be with child, and about the virgin birth, or, or the identity of Christ as the son of David and also the son of God. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, Psalm 110. Um, you know, the resurrection from Psalm 16, uh, the atoning uh, work, the substitutionary atoning work of Jesus from Isaiah 53, um, the identity of Jesus as the, the son of God and son of man from Daniel 7 and how he receives adulation and worship while also being called son of man. All of these would be key scriptures. So he's reasoning and proving from these scriptures that Jesus was the Christ.
0: It's powerful for us to consider that connection between uh, what we would call the Old Testament and Christ's coming, that there is a link between those prophecies and their fulfillment in Christ. Yeah. You know, one of the main points Paul was seeking to make was that, uh, as you said, the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. Mm. Why do you think this was such a stumbling block for the yeah. Jews to accept? Very difficult, because there is a triumphant
1: portrayal of the son of David as king of the world, king of kings and lord of lords. And uh, Solomon wrote, for example, in Psalm 72 of, of the triumphant nature of his reign. Long may he reign. And that, that desert tribes would come and, and basically lick his boots, you know, that they'll be down below him and he will be ascending over them. And of course, Jews would be all into that. And that'd be awesome. Um, and other prophecies like in Zechariah, how individuals will take hold of one Jew and say, we know that God is with you and all of this sort of stuff. The, the ascendancy of the Jewish people, that's what they're looking for. It's not without cause that they thought this way. And so that Jesus, as the Messiah, if he's going to do that, he's going to destroy the Romans. He's going to destroy all um, you know, other empires. If you look at, at Daniel chapter 2, the stone cut out but not by human hands smashes the statue representing Gentile kingdoms from Babylon, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, smashing them on the feet of clay and becoming a mountain that fills a whole earth at, at, at the end of time, at the end of days. The Lord will set up a kingdom that will not be left to another people, nor will it ever be conquered. It will last forever. Daniel chapter 2. So they had every right to expect this, but what they didn't understand was the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 and how that had to come first. Mm. Jesus had to suffer, as it says here in this text, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. Blood had to be shed because of our sins. Without the shedding of blood, there would be no forgiveness of sins. That was the lesson of the animal sacrificial system. They didn't see that. And so to them, a cursed Messiah, a Messiah dying under the curse of God made no sense to them. And how in Galatians, Paul said Christ had to be made a curse for us to relieve us from being uh, cursed by the law. And so the, uh, the fact that he took away the, the legal requirements of the, uh, of the law that was set against us, he nailed them to the cross by dying under the wrath of God for us. They couldn't see this, and it was offensive to them. And so the idea of a cursed and dying Messiah just made no sense to them at all.
0: Now, was Paul successful in his ministry in Thessalonica presenting this message to these people? Partly,
1: you know, always there's a small number. (laughs) Hmm. And he goes through this in Romans as well, in Romans 11. He says, so too, there's a remnant at the present time chosen by grace. Remember how Elijah complained against his own people saying, you know, they they all follow Baal. The Baals, I'm the only one left and they're trying to kill me. And the Lord said, not so. I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. That's a very, very small number. You think about maybe... You know, you get 600 and what, 650,000 men of military age cross the Jordan River with uh, Joshua. And it was about that number, it seems, later on, maybe bigger, a little bit bigger in David's time. Um, And now you're down to 7,000 in Elijah's time that have not bowed the knee to Baal. Very Mm -hmm. small number, but still, you know, a good number of, of Jews who were the remnant. And Paul says, there is at the present time, now, in Paul's time, A remnant chosen by grace. Remnant of who? Of the Jews who will believe that Jesus is the Christ, but a very small percentage. And so uh, it's – yeah, was he successful? Well, some of that remnant crossed over from death to life and believed, but most of them didn't.
0: Mm. So what was the nature of the persecution then that Paul faced in Thessalonica and who started it and why? Why?
1: Yeah, so um, it says in verse five the Jews were jealous, and I don't want to miss the rest of verse four where it says some God fearing Greeks. So these would be uh, some that before Paul even came to town were were Gentiles who wanted to effectively live like Jews. They believed in monotheism, they believed in the laws of Moses, they were already maybe following some of the kosher laws and some other things, maybe even they had been circumcised. Uh, Whatever rituals um, that proselytes went through, they were there, but now they're believing that Jesus is the Messiah, so they're coming to the next level. Um, And so prominent, some prominent women. Prominent meaning they were wealthy, they were noble, noble women, and they believed the gospel, so that's exciting. But it says in verse five, the Jews were jealous. Now, here's the thing. Paul actually is seeking to make them jealous. He openly says this Mm -hmm. in Romans. I am trying to stir up jealousy on the part of my own people. And what is the nature of that? You're on the outside. The feast is in here. You need to cross over from death to life. You need to come into, you need to enter the kingdom through repentance and faith in Jesus as the Messiah. You are on the outside. You're under the wrath of God. The joy is in here. The feast is in here. The banquet's in here. And you're starving. You need to come in. He wants them to feel jealous. He wants them to feel they're missing out. But they do feel jealous, but they don't respond properly. They should repent and believe and join, but instead they fight. Hmm. And so there is this this sad jealousy here as they see God blessing Gentiles uh, with the gifts of the Holy Spirit, for example, maybe speak in tongues, some other things. They, they're on the outside looking in, but instead of coming in and yielding and submitting, they start to fight.
0: What must it have been like for Paul to face so many riots and mm-hmm. mobs, crowd rage and yeah. passion? This isn't the first time and it won't be the last that no. he faces this level of persecution. What must that have been like for Paul?
1: Yeah, I mean, first of all, all right, the strategy here was they're they're rounding up some bad characters from the marketplace to slander them. All right, so this this reminds me of of the time when Ahab was king and Jezebel was his wife, and and uh, he wants somebody's vineyard, Naboth's vineyard, and and you know he's just thoroughly wicked. He's a weak man. Jezebel is just straight out demonically evil, and she gets a couple of bad guys to slander um, uh, Naboth and um, and to say he has spoken against the king, and all it's totally false. Uh, but this is, you know, the the ninth uh, commandment: you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. That's what's going on there, and that's what's going on here. They're getting some some scumbags from the from the marketplace who are hmm. lying about about the uh, about Paul and Silas, and and they start the mob, and and they start mob rule, and then a riot. I count, I guess, at least three riots that Paul's involved with. Hmm. So you had this one here. You definitely have the one in, in Acts 19, Great as Artem- Artemis of the Ephesians. That goes on and on for a couple of hours. And then we got the one in Jerusalem where they had assumed that Paul had brought a Greek into the temple and they're going crazy and they're, and they're wanting to kill him. That's three three riots. I mean, you think, have you ever... Have you ever been involved in a riot? Have you ever started a riot inadvertently? Have you ever had a riot focused on one thing, namely your death? You, <laughs> you know that's and Paul. Paul's in them again and again, mm. and so it's terrifying. You think about mob rule; the, the the it's like a beast. It's it's a group of people throwing things and chanting and screaming, et cetera. And so that's what's going on here.
0: Mm. So who is Jason that we meet in this text? And how does what happened to him relate to the rewards Jesus offered to any who will give even a cup of cold water to Christ's messengers?
1: Well, so that's you're speaking about Matthew ten, where he, where he sent them out two by two, and he said anyone who welcomes you and they can stay in your home, they get the same reward that you do. And so it seems that Jason was precisely that. Um, you know, the the enemies are saying these men have welcomed them into their house, and so Jason seems to have uh, stood ready. Uh, to receive the reward of just the simple preaching of the gospel. But now it's greatly multiplied by tenfold. Because if you receive the reward of a peaceful preaching and the fruit that comes from that, um, how much more then do you receive the reward of having been persecuted for the gospel's sake? Mm-hmm. So Jason seems to have been a believer who welcomed Paul and Silas and his team into their home, and now they're getting blamed for it.
0: So what was the accusation that the Jews made against Paul and his companions? And what do these verses teach us about the devil's schemes in attempting to stop the gospel advance?
1: Yeah, first of all, it's really pretty exciting. Um, What does your version say in verse 6?
0: Verse 6 says, When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also.
1: Turned the world upside down. That's a literalist translation. My translation just says caused trouble all over the world. But I think it's literally turned the world upside down, which I find really interesting. I think if we're going to use that language, the world was already upside down. Hmm. Adam did that and Satan. Jesus came to set it right. And those that follow Jesus and are set right by him seem to be upside down. <laughs> it's all a frame of reference, isn't it? It's like mm. to do with physics. You know, I've always thought about that. You know, North America, South America, the maps always show North America on the upper side. Unless you're from Australia, I think they have the inverted map where the whole thing's upside <laughs> down. But how can we know what's right side up or upside down? We just have a certain normalcy to the way the map shows things, um, et cetera. But you think about it in terms of morals. We are messed up. Hmm. We're messed up by our sin. Our perspective is messed up. Jesus is the only truly, perfectly sane man that's ever lived. And so you look at 1 Corinthians 1, where it speaks of the truth of God being seen to be foolishness or insanity, but it isn't. We're the insane ones. And so they're coming and saying, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Also, apart from that, Perspective of upside down, right side up. The fact is, the gospel has been revolutionary. Um, they're saying, look, everywhere this message goes, things change radically. And so you think about that, and uh, is the gospel still having that same impact? No, it's a little bit hard because the gospel's been here in America for centuries. And so it's not true that if someone is born into a Christian family in America, is raised as a Christian, comes to a genuine faith in Christ, and then seeks to live that out, they're going to have a radical impact on the society around them. It's just not true because there are many other people just like them, Hmm. men and women who have come to faith in Christ and are seeking to live faithfully and have had an impact on American society and culture. However, worldwide, wherever the gospel goes, things radically change. Things become different. And so they're saying they've come here also. And so there is a shocking response. They don't want that kind of change here in their city.
0: Now, before we move on to Berea, is there anything more that needs to be said about Paul's time in Thessalonica and what's taken place thus far in our passage?
1: Well, yeah, I want to say more about what uh, is being said about these enemies. They're defying Caesar's decree, saying there's another king, one called Jesus. Now, here's a scurrilous assault, the very thing you asked about. And I want to give a uh, fuller answer here, not just about upside down, right side up, but what are they saying? Well, there is this implication, and the Jews did this with Pontius Pilate and Jesus when Jesus was being tried. Jesus is a threat to Caesar. He's claiming to be king. Hmm. Now, Caesar should have an interest in that. And so Pilate goes to Jesus and says, are you a king? And Jesus answered truthfully, yes, you are right in saying that I'm a king. For this reason I was born, and for this I entered the world to testify to the truth. So, yes, I'm a king of truth. I'm a king of a kingdom of truth. Everyone on the side of truth follows me. I'll be the. I'll be your king if you want to follow me, Pilate. I'll be your king too if you're interested in the truth. I'm the king of truth. Pilate says, "What is truth?" And goes, mm-hmm. "I says, look, I find no fault in him. He's no threat." And and so Pilate has to deal with it. And Jesus says these incredible words: "My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight." So you think about that. It's like, if I were your kind of king, I would be leading an armed insurrection. Hmm. I am doing something else. I'm calling everyone out of the darkness of lies into the light of truth. And everyone who wants to know the truth will follow me. So Pilate doesn't know what to make of him, et cetera. But Pilate doesn't really understand what the nature of this kingdom is and how within two centuries, three centuries, actually, three centuries... um, the, the emperor, Caesar himself, Constantine, would declare himself to be a follower of Christ. And so it actually was to some degree a major threat, but not in the way he saw. Mm. We know that before Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And we know that Jesus is the judge of all the earth. And so at some point, the entire roles will be reversed. Every Caesar will be brought before Jesus on his great white throne. Pontius Pilate himself brought before Jesus. Is that a threat? You better believe it's a threat. And if you don't get Jesus right, he'll say, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That'll be you if you don't believe in Jesus. So that means kings, emperors, all of that. That's the nature of it. But this is a scurrilous assault here. Jesus is not trying to set up a kingdom on earth contrary to the Roman Empire, not at all. And so it's a false accusation. And um, and so they, they, uh, made this accusation, but the city officials, um, didn't know what to do and they didn't know what to do with Jason. So they made them postpone and let them go. So it's a little bit of a confusion at that point.
0: Yeah. Why did the brothers in Christ send Paul and Silas away at night? And what does verse 10 teach us about Paul and his commitment to Jewish evangelism?
1: Yeah, I mean, they sent him away at night because uh, they never dealt with, with Paul and Silas. They couldn't find them. I don't know where they were in Thessalonica. They just weren't, weren't there. And uh, so they go out, out at night to not exacerbate the issue. They're not trying to be persecuted. And Jesus said, when you're persecuted in one place, flee to the next, Matthew 10. So don't try to take a beating for Jesus. You don't need to. So they slip away at night so that they're not arrested and beaten and all that. Um, and so they go to, go to Berea.
0: You know, it's amazing to me that after just being persecuted by Jews who rose up against them, Paul continues in that normal pattern that we mentioned at the outset. He goes straight to them to make Christ known from the Word. Yeah. What does Luke tell us about the character of the Bereans and how are they a good example for any person who hears? teaching from the Word of God.
1: Yeah, this is a beautiful thing and many and many have referred to it. I think my entire Christian life I must have heard about the Bereans many, many times. and so frequently pastors will say it while they're preaching and say, you all need to be Bereans and so what does that mean? Well what do they do? Um, it says they're of more noble character. so they're commended by Luke under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. There's a nobility of their character. and it says they receive the message with great eagerness. they're, they're ready to go, they want to hear, and they're eager to hear this good news, they just want to be certain that it's true. Well, I think that's reasonable. Again, you know, it says earlier in this very text we've been studying here in Acts 17 um, that he reasoned with them from the scriptures. All right, we want to look at the scriptures to be certain that what you're saying is true. And if we're convinced by sound exegesis that what you're saying is true, we're going to believe it. Well, that's noble, according to um, this, or virtuous. What does your translation call them uh, in verse eleven? Noble character. They were more noble than noble. Those so, same lie. word, yeah. noble. So, there's a nobility to being open-minded to the news of the of the gospel, the good news, and then it is the way you should do it. Open the Bible to see if it's true. Read about it, and if you do. You're going to find that it is. And so the idea of being a Berean is you're taking what the pastor or the preacher says back to the text and seeing if it's true. Now, my pattern for almost 24 years here at First Baptist Church in Durham has been to do sequential exposition of the word. And if you're interested in those sermons, look in other places here on this very uh, app, this website – of two journeys and and my sermons for many, many years will be available to you. But I would I would commend the same pattern. Wherever I'm preaching, whether in the book of Daniel or or in First Thessalonians or Ephesians or Matthew, I'm in Mark right now, wherever you are, listen to the sermon and go back and Search to see if that's uh, true, if it's biblical and right, and if I'm being faithful to the text. But not just with my sermons. You should do that with anybody's sermons. Test and see if it's scriptural and true and right. And if the preacher is doing a good job, then he will
0: pass the test. What was the nature of Paul's evangelistic fruit in Berea?
1: It says many of the Jews believed as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. So he is fruitful there in Berea. He's all, he also was fruitful in, in, the, uh, in Thessalonica. So we have two epistles that he writes, First and Second Thessalonians. Um, and you know, if you look at the context there, uh, especially from the end of 1 Thessalonians 1 on into chapter 2 and then beyond into chapter 3, he's very anxious about the Thessalonian church because of this caustic persecuting environment. You've got the government against them. You've got the unbelieving Jews against them. And he was afraid that that church in Thessalonica had been a little ember that had been Mm -hmm. extinguished by the waters of persecution. And so, uh, praise God, they were still on fire for Jesus. Now, in in Berea, uh, we don't have any letter or epistle to the Bereans, but uh, church gets planted there. There are some believing Jews and some Greeks who come to faith in Christ.
0: Now, it's really interesting that we have these two accounts right back back to back because I feel like we're asking some of the same questions here that we were of Paul's experience in Thessalonica. But what was the nature of the persecution in Berea? Mm-hmm. Who caused it and what was the outcome? Well, it's very tragic. It's the Jews in Thessalonica
1: make the journey over to Berea. Hmm. And so they are settled in their opposition to the gospel. And Paul says very plainly, they displease all men in their efforts to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. And so this is exactly what's going on here. They are determined to hunt Paul down, to chase him down and to oppose him. I think they're motivated by Satan, by demons. Hmm. And Satan is doing whatever he can to stop the apostle Paul. And so they are highly motivated Jews who will do whatever they can. Now, I think Saul of Tarsus, the apostle Paul before his conversion, would understand this zeal exactly how he was. Hmm. Um, He went to Damascus having obtained letters from uh, from the chief priest to shut down this sect of Jesus among the Jews there. So you get the same kind of zeal and Paul can testify about them in Romans that they're zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. So it's amazing how open-minded he is about these, his enemies, but he also knows that they're they're displeasing God and they're hostile to people. And so they Jews in Thessalonica who make the journey, take it on the road as Paul did from Jerusalem to Damascus. They also are doing the same thing to hunt him down.
0: In the end, why do you think Paul decided to be separated from Silas and Timothy? And was this a trial for Paul?
1: Yeah, I don't know if, there, if all of the focus has been on Paul. And if he leaves, things are going to quiet down. It's that way earlier in the book of Acts um, where Paul went to Jerusalem. And then you know he is, there was so much opposition to Paul because obviously his friends in the Sanhedrin are like, well, he's, he's a turncoat. And so they're going to focus on Paul. And then finally, the brothers there in the church in in Jerusalem send him away back to his home area. Hmm. And then it says, all the churches had peace. Things quieted down. So the focus really seemed to be on Paul. And once Paul left town, things quieted down. So Paul's the problem. He's the marked man. I've often said before, I think it's interesting, like uh, when I was growing up, I don't know if they still do it, um, but in post offices, they'd have the FBI's 10 most wanted, you know, with pictures one after the other, number one through 10, different you know, criminal men and women that were wanted and on the loose. Um, and I could imagine on the satanic satanic bulletin board and in, in the satanic post office, Paul would be persons one through 10. It's <laughs> like he's the only guy we want to shut down right hmm. now. Everything we can do to shut this guy down, we will do. And so I think there's such a tremendous focus on Paul that if we get him out of town, things will quiet down. So Paul left. Um, by himself, and, and he wanted to be reunited with Silas and Timothy later, but he, he leaves.
0: You really do get a sense from Paul's ministry that he longed to be with the brothers and sisters that he loved so leaving Silas and Timothy must have been uh, a hard decision for him to make but one that he felt uh, as you just mentioned was yeah. necessary because of the level of persecution yeah. Andy what final thoughts do you have for us today on the passage we've been looking at
1: well also uh, just to piggyback on what you just said it also sets up the amazing courage shows uh, Paul shows in Athens because he's alone and uh, he's there and he's had this experience and, and we'll get to that God willing next time but final words here is just um, you know we are called on as Christians to be uh, messengers of the gospel in our in our time and we're not likely to reach anywhere near the level of opposition and persecution that Paul went through but you know find an opportunity if you're if you're a follower of Jesus Christ uh, to share the gospel with somebody, to to uh, say something to somebody in your workplace or uh, maybe in the supermarket or where you go or somebody that you frequent, maybe a barista at a coffee shop where you go or maybe it's uh, some other person that you know and share the gospel with them and be willing to pay the price. Uh, Paul was very bold and willing and so I would urge you in the same direction.
0: Well, this has been episode 34 in our Acts Bible Study Podcast. We want to invite you to join us next time for episode 35, entitled Paul in Athens Passion and Persuasion, where we'll discuss Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this
1: resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non commercial purposes